Welcome to Work of Fiction, the podcast that analyzes the fictional organizations you see in movies and TV. Today's episode, Winning People Over to Change in Morning Glory. I'm Paula Sizik, and today I am joined by Nobel CEO Lucy Chung. Hi. As well as a new member of our Nobel team, organizational designer Danielle Valentius. Hey. We are members of Nobel, an organizational design firm that transforms company cultures. Every month we like to take a break from helping real organizations change to discuss fictional leaders and organizations. Danielle, I know that both you and Lucy were really eager to talk about Morning Glory in particular. So why don't you give us a little summary of the movie and tell us why you wanted to talk about it. Happy to. So Becky's this dedicated, driven producer at a local morning TV show, and she's ready to get called up to the big leagues. And she gets her chance when she gets a position at Daybreak, but it's unfortunately the worst rated morning show on the air and has a cankerous pair of anchors that she has to work with. She can't turn the show around in six weeks. It's going to get canceled. And then she dashes her dreams of making it to the Today Show as well. So there's a lot riding on this. The reason I initially wanted to talk about it is because I was like, oh, it's high drama. It's a perfect example of change management and the comeback and organizational restructures. It actually depressed me a little bit upon second viewing because of how realistic it is. You know, her first day at Daybreak, Becky's first day, is one that I return to quite frequently because I think it's a sort of like ultimate operator prowess moment. Tell Rocco if he insists on making lasagna, he will be bumped. Yes, all size models, but skirts not too short. Toxins? Who said that? Yeah, they can't be measured. And rejuvenization? Not a word. Tell Longoria's people that she can't plug her next film unless we get her within a week of GMA. Parakeet. Ernie? Weathercock? Seriously? The Plaza for Squash. I want Patrick Dempsey. Tell his people we'll run him in the first hour and he can talk about whatever his thing is. Tampa Bay, definitely local talent. And we've got to fix that soundboard. Find that 10 grand in the budget somewhere. The hair and makeup numbers, those were too high. So Colleen, could you share your hair person oh, with Lisa on her days? I'd like great, to talk great. to you about Okay, Asian baby, no teeth. Lesbian parents. Oh, okay. Did I miss anything? It's just such a phenomenal moment of being underestimated and then proving them wrong. And I just love that, that scene. So that's also why I wanted to chat about it, because I, I go back to that scene quite frequently for inspiration. Fittingly, when we first meet Becky, she's working as a producer at a local news station, which is going through a restructure. And it turns out that she and all of her colleagues are convinced she's going to get a promotion. She's moving on up, but instead she is let go. How do you cope with change? Oh God, really poorly. <laughs> I'm in that now. Okay, this this isn't this isn't a therapy session for you, Lisa. We're trying to give advice to our to our audience. But how, isn't it, how does but isn't it helpful to change? know that you're not alone? Isn't it helpful to normalize that it's okay to not always that even a change manager, someone who does this for a living, is actually quite crap at it at times. I actually found her reaction sort of interesting because you know, on one hand, getting let go can be a mild trauma, and having both having let people go many times it even if there's been you know bountiful feedback it kind of usually blindsides someone so this point about how do you cope with change it's like it's almost like how do you cope with change that 
in one moment does a 180 on your life. Like it just upheaves your entire life, right? And so I was really actually impressed with how she immediately was embodied and was crying and upset, right? She wasn't just sort of like sitting there in a state of shock. I definitely don't do that. I definitely don't immediately understand what I'm feeling in that moment and know what to do about it. And then she immediately goes into interviewing for new jobs to a point of like, I loved her going to all these different places and having phone conversations in cafes and on boats and things. I'm like, just stay at home and sit in front of a computer to have those phone calls. Why are you out and about having these phone, these really important career defining phone calls? Uh, so that is not how I would execute it. But I was... I had to set up how busy she is. Right. But it's like you're busy yeah, interviewing. Yeah. Like just even the way they time-lapsed her packing up her house, I was like, that is a painstaking process. So she copes with it by just like launching into action. And I don't actually think that that's often how people react and definitely not how I react or cope with change. I think there's an element of being in the liminality of what do you do next and how does it feel to be in an ambiguous space when it comes to coping. So I think it's actually really important to take to take stock and sit in that in that middle ground and sit in that liminality and sit in that uncertainty because I think some growth can really happen there. I was thinking something similar, Lucy. You almost have to you do have to sit in those feelings and really feel them and not just say this happened to me and then just continue pushing through your life because that change particularly if it's a negative one that it could be resentment that that resentment lingers and you may not even consciously realize that those negative feelings are lingering with you until you stop and sit with it so i think this idea of getting closure in the change whether it's you know a happy change or negative change just sitting with it and getting closure so the body recognizes like this is over this stress point is over and then you can move forward from there Luckily, Becky recovers really well from the sudden shock of her layoff, and she does start interviewing furiously at, at many places, and she lands an interview at Daybreak. Now, the very first person she has to convince of making a change, of taking a risk and hiring her, is executive Jerry Barnes, who's played by Jeff Goldblum, and he is sort of an interview nightmare. He essentially insults her entire resume and calls her presumptuous for even applying for the job with her limited experience. You're too young. Nobody's ever heard of you. And here, your education three, not four years, at Fairleigh Dickinson in Teaneck, also known as Fairly Ridiculous. Did I miss anything? How do you convince somebody that it's worth taking a risk, that they should try doing something differently? In this case, the status quo is riskier than taking what is perceived as a risk because the status quo means they're absolutely going off the air and it's failing. He sort of pretends that it's a risk to hire her, but she's absolutely being hired into a glass cliff situation. He's like, this is gonna fail no matter what. She's just sort of like, I'm willing to take the fall, you know? I wonder how many people he actually interviewed for the position. How many people before her, if he had any serious candidates and he's like, yeah, oh, this one sounds spunky, let's throw her in. <laughs> I mean, one of the things we recommend with clients is we start small, right? So we apply an agile methodology to change and to change management and org design. And so what that means is that we start with something really incremental and something really dumb, simple. Number one, for a quick win so that change starts to feel less less uncomfortable, but also because it's less risky to make a very, very small incremental change. 
And then, of course, too, you get to build in more of an iterative learning loop around like, well, what worked about that and what didn't and what, how can we use those learnings for bigger and bigger and bigger changes? So that is absolutely one of the ways is we just say, well, yeah, you know, we know you can't commit to this whole cloth huge change because that does feel quite risky and you are going to experience feelings of resistance and loss. But can we can we get you to what about just this teeny thing? You know, can we just do this one little ritual differently on this one day and see how it feels? And this is what we're going to be looking for. Even in meetings, sometimes I'll have some cynics in meetings go, oh, I don't want to do the meeting like this. I'll often say, is it going to kill you to go 45 minutes with me? Is it safe to try to go 45 minutes with me? And if I'm, if I'm wrong, I will circle back. And so they're able to give me that commitment. And in a way that's very similar to doing, you know, a larger kind of um, agile change management pilot or experiment is giving them some small thing to commit to. That's bold. That's very Becky-esque. <laughs> it's this 45 minutes safe. And also we've seen that change also comes from not the attitudes of people, but from the behaviors. So if you can get them to commit to that 45 minutes of this new meeting formula, maybe next time we can do it again and do it again. And then you start to fall into a rhythm. Now, you, now like you said, Lucy, you open that door mm -hmm. and now the change willingness and change curiosity too is, is open and more and more open. But should you work so hard to convince people of change, right? Because when we see Barnes, he's almost set against the entire show succeeding in the first place. How do you decide, yeah, I want to change this place or no, I'm going to walk. This is not worth my time. Okay. So, so this gets into the, the, one of the criticisms I have of her as a change manager. She didn't enlist anyone because she was basically lone wolfing the change, the entire movie. And it's unnecessary. Like you could see that, that Diane Keaton's character was down. You could see that the weather guy, Ernie, was into it. Like mostly blue skies, cumulus clouds on the horizon, always a good sign this time of year. Oh, might be heading into our first dip. Oh my, oh my. They were all up for change. So they could have been enlisted in a more sort of intentional, specific, strategic way. And then the work wouldn't have been as hard. Like one of the reasons that she works so hard at it is because she goes, she's, she isolates herself to a degree as a leader. This is where I don't have enough experience in this industry to know if that's the nature of an executive producer role and that's sort of what's expected. And so maybe she was just following a bit of a proverbial playbook for what that role looks like. But I see no reason why she couldn't have enlisted more champions and made it much easier. Because if it's only possible to do it the way she did it, absolutely walk. She was like burning it at both ends. It's totally unhealthy. She's obviously, you know, brilliant. That said, I say that and I'm like, well, she interviewed at 10 other places and didn't get a job. Maybe this, maybe she doesn't have optionality. I'm kind of of two minds on the whole thing, to be honest, of, to walk or to not walk and something like that. I think you have to weigh the reward and the, against the risk. And I feel like she didn't do that enough in the initial interview with Barnes. Now, later on in the movie, we see her go back after she gets the news that, hey, in six weeks, this is going to be canceled. I would like to talk to you. No, you're going to bust a cap in my ass. What if I get the ratings up? We've got six weeks. What if I move that needle just enough? You won't. Well, you're, you don't know that. Becky. There's got to be some number I can hit that will give us a shot that would just give us an extra six months, something. I'm sure if you got over 1.5 or something absurd like Done. That. So I've got your word. I get those ratings up more than three quarters of a point. You give me more time? Won't happen. We'll see about that. Which is great. She locked in that, that contract with him. 
Also, she should have written it down because if I learned anything from my HR days, <laughs> it's to get it in writing. <laughs> but we'll assume that she she followed up with an email. And I, at that point, I, I think the reward makes a lot of sense because she is putting in a ton of work. But the reward is that they'll get an extension on this show and that could, you know, perpetuate her to her dreams of being on the Today Show. The very first sign that we get that Becky is serious about change is that she immediately fires one of the anchors, who is just like a walking sexual harassment case. Oh, Paul! Uh, You're fired. You're adorable. Fired! Uh, I'm sorry, that was unprofessional. What are the pros and cons of making such a dramatic gesture at the very start of your tenure? Is this a good idea if you're trying to get people excited about change? Does this put people on notice? What do you think? I have so many feelings about this scene, Uh. and I know you do too, Lucy. It really sets the stage of, wow, this person is not, is not messing around. However, my one criticism of Becky is I don't think she took the time to look at all her resources before she fired the anchor of this two-person show. So while he was a, you know, dumpster truck of a human, I'm assuming that he hasn't done anything so awful that he needs to go needs to be terminated immediately so i feel like i'm going on a lot of assumptions but i feel like she might have another like 48 hours or so to play with in that time look at her options of who the other anchors are because we found she found herself scrambling a little bit and then the person she brought on was he the best option well he's the option that was available under this extreme time crunch i have a lot of like back and forth feelings with becky and how she handled that i like how you guys are couching your criticism in terms of, I just have one criticism of Becky. It's okay if you have more than one criticism. That's what we're doing on this. So I think McPhee has done things that would be considered uh, misconduct. The sheer fact that in the first 10 minutes, he asks her if she wants to pose for his foot fetish site. If you want, we could discuss this further privately. What size are your feet? You're about a six and a half, seven. Pardon? How do you feel about having him photographed? So he, she definitely has grounds. The, the challenge I have are, are sort of twofold. Is like one, terminating someone publicly, even if it's someone who's to your point a dumpster truck of an individual, is unnecessary humiliation and not actually an example that you want to give, even for someone awful, even to sort of do a show of strength. It's not that I think he deserves dignity. I just think that the example of what it looks like to terminate someone needs to still be humane in order to make sure other people understand that that's how they could be expected to be treated. And I know there are organizations that have absolutely done that, but I think that that's a culture that we should be putting an end to. That's a great point. She's not modeling good leadership at that point. She's modeling strength for herself, but she's not modeling leadership for her team. publicly humiliating someone and creating an environment where an individual is made to feel shame intentionally is an is a non-inclusive mm-hmm. environment now did he create an uninclusive environment absolutely he is a horrible example of how to create an environment where inclusion is at the top she's upholding it too she's perpetuating it by publicly firing him like make that something discreet message it really empathically explain that some of the behaviors he exhibited are absolutely unacceptable 
but do that in a way that is professional. Of course you had to do it for the movie because it like makes the story arc, but in real life, I think no. And the other thing I would say is this movie came out before the Me Too movement. That would have been like really high stakes and really daring. Different from now where post Me Too, you, firing someone who's sexually harassed, there was lots of sexual harassment that was pervasive, especially in media and television. And so that kind of worries me too, that if she's kind of surveyed the landscape, she may have realized that firing him was actually going to cause like massive stakeholder management at the top that made her time even more difficult. So going through the regular channels would have been the way I would advise her, even though he's a piece of shit, that guy. <laughs> and needs to go. Especially being brand new. I mean, at that point, we're to assume she's, what, 24 hours or so yeah. on the job? There would be a lot of feather ruffling from up top and explanation to, from on her part. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So she fires McVie. She fires a sexual harassment dumpster truck of a human being. And as a replacement anchor, she then brings in Harrison Ford's gruff, surly Mike Pomeroy, a no-nonsense journalist who believes that news is a temple. And he is disgusted by what he perceives as the frippery of these, these morning talk shows. You have any idea what's going on in the world? And you want me to do stories about baked Alaska? after the career that I've had. <laughs> you, you just need to have an open mind. I mean, yes, the morning news has a wider range of stories, but- A wider range? Your program is in the news department, you cretin. News is a sacred temple, and you're part of the cabal that's ruining it with horseshit. And Becky essentially spends the rest of the movie convincing Pomeroy to just do his job as a morning show anchor. How does she motivate him? How does she win him over to the cause? Mike is a complex character. At this point, and he says it flat out, his motivation is just money. He's just writing out his contract and he agrees to do the morning show because he has to have a job to get the rest of the money in his contract. But there's a lot of change for Mike as well. We know that he was a big respected news anchor back in the day. So he has that pride in him. He might be dealt with these feelings of loss of legacy and loss of respect. And for someone who, who really anchors their whole personality on being respected and seen as like this, you know, this temple, this source of news information, it could be hard to make that switch. So while it's easy to write Mike off as almost being like the, the bad guy, if you will, the, the um, antagonist in the movie, we have to look into his character and see where he was coming from and where he is now. So she tries to do some environmental explanation. Like she tries to explain how the landscape has changed and why that's okay. I would argue that's actually not gonna motivate, I mean, it doesn't motivate him. Um, she's persistent as hell, right? She like is almost like in a frenzy. Well, I mean, we can talk a little bit about like how her leadership energy and things, but you know, she runs alongside um, Jeff Goldblum's character when he's running. She's like, she she goes out to the country where Harrison Ford's character is shooting. You know, she's kind of like in their face, just wearing them down until they're finally gonna. That's I think the, the idea is like the wear them down change tactic or the wear them down motivating tactic. And then finally, sort of towards the end, she tries to appeal to him from a personal perspective to say, you know, I've always admired you and it turns out you're the worst person. And that sort of gets him thinking slightly differently, but barely. And then it's actually Diane Keaton's character who says to him, you know, you've driven her away. You did this. 
They're gonna hire her. Yeah. She's at the Today Show right now, Ding Dong. Do you, do you have any idea, you know, what you've done here? Because we had a decent producer, a decent show, and God forbid anyone around here should be happy, but, but you had to have this happen, didn't you? But yeah, what does she try to do to motivate him is literally just stay in his face. I wonder if Mike is so hard-headed, if that's if that was the only way really to motivate him, or if there would have been a, a more conversational way to do it, a more meet in the middle. Mike and his co-anchor, Colleen, they don't really get along. In fact, their initial meeting, the first time they officially meet as co-workers, it takes place literally halfway in between their dressing rooms. You see Becky counting out step by step what the middle part of the hallway is. How do you get difficult colleagues to meet in the middle? How do you get them to at least be willing to talk about maybe considering some type of change? It's always better to have people more personally invested in the change that you're going through. It's a much stronger way of approaching it. But at some point, if those parties are just completely unwilling to, to open up and play ball, I think you have to look at the business side of it and say, okay, this is what's mandated of you. This is what you were hired for. This is what's in your contract. And at some point, like, we have to make this work or else there's going to be more, you know, tangible consequences from it. But I think the first step is seeing if there's a way to appeal to the motivation and get get that personal buy-in. And then if you have to, go to the more, uh, you know, like, legalese side of it or the contractual side of it, which is never fun. That's never fun to pull pull the red tape on someone like that. And say like you have to do this. I was hired you to do this. I think she. I think she, you know she did the quite like explicit version of what I think usually happens in a more kind of metaphorical, emotional, interpersonal way, which is get people to meet in the middle, get them to come to a place that feels like less than a compromise. So I actually really like that scene where she's like counting the steps because that's kind of what you would do is to sort of say like how much can this person sacrifice before it feels like they've gone beyond the middle ground. The other thing I would say is lots of one-on-ones as a facilitator or coach before you get into a room with, with the two people who are really kind of having a big conflict so that they really feel like they genuinely have an advocate for, for them in the room and that you're truly trying to do what's best for both of them and earning that trust. I don't think she did that. I don't think she did the earn trust from Colleen and Mike before you get them into that. I mean, she didn't have time, but that's one uh -oh. that I feel like would be really important. Another criticism of Becky. That's yeah. that's at least three that we've I know. come up with this we're full entire of podcast. We love her, but we're full <laughs> of criticisms for her. Looking at Colleen, she actually has a bit of a character arc herself. She goes from being cynical... Uh, upset that nobody's taking her or the show seriously to really buying in. She actually says, put me in, coach. I see what you're doing. I think it's great. It's exactly what I've been waiting for. So just, you know, fight me up, coach, put me in, whatever you want to call it, all right? How, how does her character arc show how you can win people over to the changes that you're trying to make? My heart kind of ached for Colleen. And I'll tell you why, because I get the sense that in most of her, or at least recent anchor life, she, her life and her actions have had to revolve around these awful news anchors. And we see that a lot in the film too, where the, the women, I'm gonna speak a little more broadly, but the women 
their actions have to revolve around the actions of the men around them. So the men can be these egotistical, outlandish, hot-headed folks, and then the environment, the women have to adjust and work around that. So I get the feeling that Colleen was very stifled in an environment like that. So I'm sure she became secondary and had to work around his antics that were pushing the culture forward. And I have a feeling she's just so stifled in this when she gets a executive producer, Becky, who says, okay, I'm going to blow the doors open. Let's just do this, these wild things. She's like, yes, I'm into it. You can see like her life like renewing in her eyes and her energy. And it's such a wonderful moment where this, you know, older woman, I say older intentionally because older women are generally, again, broadly speaking, more or less disregarded in our society. But this older woman finally gets this second chance or a chance to be like, all right, I, I can, I'm stepping up and the doors are open for me to play in this environment again. I think it's such a wonderful moment for her. And I love seeing that. I would also say that what we don't see is the rest of the staff coming on board, right? We only see Ernie who's up for it. And then we see her, Colleen, jump on the boat. I think the reality was likely that all the behind the scenes, the crew, all the other players also jumped on and the whole culture started to move. And Mike was the one who was sort of left. And so Colleen is sort of joining what is likely a bigger wave of change. And we definitely see that in our work where the change, you know, those change champions start to come along. Those, those folks that were more like fence sitters waiting to see how the wind blew, they come along. And really the cynics are the last one. And Mike is the true cynic, whereas Colleen kind of never was. You'll often hear us say that cynics are actually just idealists that have been hurt before, right? They've been promised a change or they had a vision for what could be different and it didn't happen. And I wonder if maybe that's actually a really great way to think about Colleen. On one episode of the dating show about a bachelor dwarf in our entire weekly budget. No. And uh, I've never had a decent co-anchor ever. We're gonna Just change a revolving door of cretinous morons. Our ratings are in the crapper. I, I mean, how long can this show? Limp along like this. I know that everyone's been through a lot, and, uh -huh. and I know that there's been so many challenges along the way. But you know You will I, fail like everyone else and then you'll be gone like everyone else but i will still be here pulling the train up the hill with my teeth you think it's fun getting your ass kicked no, welcome I... to daybreak enjoy the pain get to now she's finally getting this opportunity to do something different and again it goes back to this idea of going it alone versus building a team for change right as we mentioned colleen is actually the one who finally finally gets mike to change for becky so what should leaders who might be tempted to go it alone, who might think of themselves as mavericks pushing through change, what should they take from this? I think find your change. cohort. Don't give up on finding your cohort. Don't do it alone. Organizations are too complex of an ecosystem and change is too arduous of a process to go it alone. If you really find yourself in a position where you are truly the lone wolf on change, and really I mean you've exhausted all avenues, you've gone to every layer of the organization looking for change champions, and for whatever reason it's really just not possible, or maybe it's that the, the high ups, right, the board, etc., are just 100% not sponsoring you, then you do have to walk, right, if you really can't get that done, but it's unlikely. Usually there are a few people that are sort of waiting to be deployed and enlisted when it comes to change especially in a much larger organization. Often we find that, we find kind of pockets of 
a, a sub department or a leader or a new a new leader or you know some folks that are a little bit more junior than are typically enlisted and they're and they're ready for it. So I would say don't give up on finding the cohort and don't mighty mouse it and don't lone wolf it. Yeah, change is a team effort and you know change is hard, but together it is possible. That's a shout out to Bud. <laughs> Nobel's tagline, but it's so true, especially if you're in an organization that has many layers, many people to it. To be the lone wolf advocating for change is a very, it's a very, very, very uphill battle. And there are certainly other people in the organization who may have feelings similar to your own of the change. So seek them out and, and build that force. Related to that, there's not a lot of transparency in this workplace. When Becky's first given a tour, her second-in-command tells her the truth, but then he says, Colleen Peck has been here forever. Don't, don't mention that. Okay. V is paid more. Don't mention that either. They hate each other. Don't mention that. But that's because Colleen hates everybody. Don't mention that. And she used to sleep with V. We threw her over for her assistant. Don't, don't mention, mention that. Lawrence tells her that the show is getting canceled, but she's not going to tell the team in order to protect their morale. Mike Pomeroy says he's going to go cover the sauerkraut festival when he's actually going to go cover the governor's arrest. And yet we see that the characters actually do respond well when they're told the truth. Again, when Colleen tells Mike that Becky's leaving the show because of his actions, that finally spurs him to show that he can change. How open should you be when you're trying to make change within your organization? What's safe to share? There's a fine line between stakeholder management and marketing. And so when I think about transparency, I think that it's not whole cloth transparency is best. There's there's sort of there's a fine line between stakeholder management and marketing, and there's also a fine line between kind of confident vulnerability while also seeming to be competent as a leader. There is a fair bit of nuance to how much are we going to share of this story and how much are we not? How much of it is more sensitive in nature and how much of it do we need to wait on? And there's a lot of that definitely when it comes to leadership, coaching and change communications. I would say this is incredibly circumstantial and incredibly needs to be tailored to the culture that you're dealing with. There isn't one answer to how much transparency and how much you do keep behind closed doors. It's subtle, but Becky also makes some changes herself. She gets a new haircut, she establishes some work-life boundaries. So while at the same time, yes, you want to build a coalition for change, how can you at the same time lead by example? I think keeping a very expansive yes mindset is is a very positive thing to do and not to go down a, a cheesy route or anything, but you want to make sure you're keeping that growth mindset for yourself and your team. And that's not to be confused with toxic positivity. You know, if something is very hard or if there's a setback or something, someone's going through something difficult, don't just yes them and rainbow them, you know, but keep that expansive yes mindset of like, what are the possibilities and can we go down these different avenues of possibilities and then if and when we hit a roadblock okay let's stop and reassess but keeping that openness versus keeping a limited scope mindset of like okay everything seems hard and there's all these barriers so we're just going to focus on this one very small easy path that really limits your possibilities for for change so as a leader i think it's your job to promote that that yes forward expansive energy with your team I feel like as humans, we're inherently going to kind of limit it and take the easier route 
rather than thinking of something a bit more challenging and uphill that we can work towards. That's really the leader's job, to see that vision and get the team there. It's interesting that you went to the expansive yes place, because I immediately when we talk about um, Becky's changes, I start thinking about the, the no's that she's saying. But for me, the the moment where she puts her own phone in the fridge and says no to work and puts those boundaries down is like a real moment of heroic effort on her own part. I have an issue with the idea that healthier work-life boundaries is somehow directly correlated with a more austere appearance. You see Becky's hair go more slick to the side. You see her outfits become sort of more monotone and more masculine, frankly. She becomes sort of less of that approachable, more Midwestern look and more of the classic like New York City businesswoman look. There's like, it's increase in austerity, but somehow also an increase in work-life boundaries. And I have such an issue with that. Like, shouldn't it be the opposite? In my mind, it's it's that really extractive New York City work-life style that is that is at odds with work-life balance and that is at odds with restorative rituals and practices that have to do with laying those boundaries. I would so much rather see her keep her her core style and her keep how she is more of that like midwestern frenzied really lovable bubbly bangs in the front of her face constantly touching her face character while also still being able to hold the power in that hierarchy, get Mike to come around and assert work-life boundaries, right? Like that would be such a, such a great example. Show me the hero that keeps her proverbial bangs in front of her face and her frenzied energy who, all, who also does that. I want that hero. Yeah, and to bring this, back, to bring this conversation back to change, like how does, how does get, advancing your career change you? Or how do you choose to change in order to advance your career, how do you think you have to change? What are those societal messages? And those tropes are tropes that are informing us and, and informing the young girls and women watching. Couldn't agree more. Coming up. And oh, it's a whole nother podcast. Stay tuned for part two. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. <laughs> Last question. Becky has invited us to work with the Daybreak team. What is the first thing that we would recommend doing to improve the team culture? I would be interested to see the dynamic between Mike and Colleen because I feel like not only for from a ratings perspective and a viewer's perspective, you really want your two morning show co-anchors to, to have that unique um, natural chemistry with each other, but they all also set the stage of the culture at the internally at Daybreak as well. You know, of course you have your VP who's who is the legitimate leader with the power, but they are the full influential leadership. So I would be really interested to dive into that dynamic and see if we can get those two really cohesive and gelling together. And then ask them, how can we take your leadership and move this show forward? Where do you want to take this show? And see if we can get their buy-in to start leading the, the way for more positive change. That's great. One of the things we talk about all the time is creating leaders within the organization. So that might be a really smart place to start is looking at where's the soft power within the team? How can we get these anchors, these leaders to start acting like the leaders that we desperately need them to be? Great point. So we do, we do a um, sort of strategic planning process that we call adaptive planning. And it starts with understanding what the vision or we, you know, the kind of call it North Star, right? We start with that part of it. It feels like there hasn't been a whole lot of codification of 
what she's you know embarked on which makes sense she was moving at you know frenzied rapid speed but i think we're you know what we're seeing is the kickoff of a new era where to danielle's point the leaders can be enlisted in a different way and so understanding what those bets are that's what we call our sort of objectives or goals right what bets are we going to make and codifying those and getting the kind of other stakeholders involved and enlisting finally this change champion cohort, because she still hasn't really galvanized the full team against like, what is your vision? You know, the first vision was don't be the worst uh, morning show on the air and get the points up. But ideally the points should be a kind of measurement of something else that's happening, right? There's an innovative, fresh take. There's more of an experiential news delivery. Go to the drawing board a bit, get on a whiteboard, get in a room and sort of get the key stakeholders in that room to really codify what's next. Like what does this next chapter at ERA look like really? Kick off that process. That's what I would want to do with them. I'd really enjoy that, by the way. <laughs> it sounds like fun. And yeah. clean the clutter. Yeah, that's no one, no one works well in the cluttered space. Cluttered space, cluttered mind. Thanks for listening to Work of Fiction. Don't forget to subscribe for future updates and leave us a rating if you liked what you heard. You can always find more episodes or get in touch with us at workoffiction.fm. Work of Fiction. Work of Fiction. Companies, movies, and TV.